This is our prayer that we are shaped to be like Jesus, and so with it we come to the Word of God. We're looking at this letter of Peter, 1 Peter, and can I, can I just encourage you, it's a short letter to take time in, in these weeks and just read it. It'll take you about five minutes um, just to, to read it and to let God's Word wash over you. Chapter 1, as we said, it, it talked about us being born again, transformed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and that giving us a hope that would be there even when suffering came. And then chapter 2 starts with these words that I already read, and they are such beautiful words. There, there's some passages of Scripture I, I find myself keeping coming back to, not because I want to study them or try to understand the Greek, but just because they are so strong that when we read them, and it's particularly ones that tell me who I am as a Christian, I, I, and I find as I, as I read them and meditate on them, it's almost as if everything else begins to fall into place. You know what I mean? You don't need a sermon. You just need the verse. And so this morning, I would say, if you don't remember anything that I say, just go away with these words ringing in your ears from Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Go and live it. The image that Peter's already given us here is that we are living stones. That we do these things as a people together. And the rest of this chapter, indeed the next chapter, is simply asking the question, well, so what? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me in my family situation? What does that mean for me in my workplace situation? What does that mean for me in the society and its politics and all that goes with it? Now, it's quite difficult to take the next part and exactly match it up to our situation. We do not live in imperial Rome. We are not in a church where a whole load of us are slaves. We are in a church where many of us are living in families where people aren't, aren't believers. And in that sense, it's, it's not that unlike the early Christians because the strange thing is they look around the churches, a lot of women were coming to faith and their, their men who controlled so much in that patriarchal society weren't necessarily happy. A lot of slaves were coming to faith and trying to work out how on earth do I live for Jesus when I've got a master who, who controls my life? And then there was the whole concept of Caesar and the fact that everybody went off to worship the emperor or went off to worship the cult of the city or, 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 or if you were in business, you were expected to be part of a business guild and they, 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 they worshiped these statues. How, how do I live that? And it, it starts off with a very, simple, a very simple way of thinking in verse 11. Friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. 
I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And what this starts off by doing is simply saying this, you know, you are going to be different and it's not always going to be hard. It's not always going to be easy. Now, the strange thing about this is some of the people in the congregation probably got that because some of them had a Jewish background and they were used to living in the world just as Jews live in the world today with a minority status. They were used to living where people thought they were weird because they did all these Jewish things and and they only worshipped one God. They had generations of that heritage and trying to work out how you're distinct and yet you play your part in the economics and the family life of the city. But the rest of the congregation, probably the majority, had been born in that place. They'd grown up in those families. How am I a foreigner or an alien? I'm from Motherwell. What does it mean to be a foreigner or an alien? What does this mean? But what this passage is saying is this. You've had such a change when you became a Christian. God has done something so fundamental to you. He's given you this new purpose, this new belonging, this new family, this new identity, that it's going to estrange you from the world around you. It's going to alienate you from some of the things that all your pals and all your family are just taking for granted. The motives and the things that drive the economy that you're part of. The things that you take for granted in business, for granted in politics, because everybody else does. You're going to find yourself thinking, is that what God wants? The background to this partly is, is how the Romans saw the church. Now, actually, at the time Peter's writing, most Romans didn't see the church at all, because we've got to remember it was tiny. It's just small house groups scattered in the cities of the Roman Empire. But when they did notice it, and we do have some written records of pagan Romans and and their attitude to the Christians, particularly some Roman governors who were writing to the emperor, one of them was writing to the emperor to say, I've got these Christians in my province and I'm not quite sure what to do with them because they they won't do the things that they're supposed to do. It's safe to say when they saw the Christians, the Romans thought, these guys are weird. They were weird at all sorts of levels. First of all, they only worshipped one God. And that wasn't just a theological thing because the Romans were worshipping all sorts of gods and they were doing it all the time and they were doing it very publicly and it was part of the festivals and it was part of the family life and you had little idols in your, in your home and, and you had baths where people went and they, they gave an offering to whatever god it was and they went into the temple where they got, had parties for the kids and all these things. So when these, these Christians said we, we only worship one god, it wasn't just theology, it was a big problem because they were opting out of so much of the social life of the empire. And it was a political problem because at that point in history, the Romans were beginning to and the Greeks were beginning to look on the emperor as a god. The part of your duty to him was worship. And, And the Christians were saying no. And it was a problem because if the harvest failed and people started looking around and said, which god are we annoyed? Then it was easy to say, ah, These people aren't honoring the gods. That's why. That's what's wrong. And the Christians were weird in other ways because they gathered together in groups and they treated men and women with an equality, which in a heavy patriarchal society was bananas. It was used to an idea that the husband decided the religious flavor of the house, and that was it. And here were churches 
that were recruiting and allowing wives and daughters and children to come and be an equal part of the church. And not only that, they had slaves as well. So they were mixing all the social hierarchies and all the things that were going wrong. And they called one another brother and sister. Radical attitude to the poor a radical attitude to the underclasses, a radical attitude to gender, and all these things that are going on in the church. And what it resulted in was not just criticism, but actually resulted in some slanders that we know were going around. For instance, people would say, well, um, they have all these women going to these strange meetings with men. Uh You know what's going on in that church, don't you? And they call one another brother and sister and greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh huh. And so the church began to get reputations in some places of immorality, of incest. And they eat body and blood. They're blooming cannibals. And these were the stories that were going around. And that's the background to which Peter reads. And what he's saying here as he addresses the different groups in the church. And if you read through the next chapters, you can see this laid out. It's one of the reasons why we can put words on the screen, but it's actually quite good to bring a Bible with you because you can flick ahead and just see how the whole thing lines up. And actually, if you find a sermon boring, you've got something good to read as well. So do bring Bibles with you when you come to church. I know we've got it on the screen and that's helpful, but it's also helpful just to be able to to look through a Bible when you come. But... He's dealing with the practicalities of their lives. As I said, the empire, the authorities, civic authorities, those that have authority over you in your daily life. Now, for us, that would be our our bosses or our managers or our leaders. For many of the Christians, it would be their masters because they were slaves. And then he will go on in the next chapter to talk about husbands and wives and the domestic principle. But basic to it, And what reads across our own situations is the principle that we find just in these verses here. You are different, and you are made to be different. You have a new birth, a new community, a new destination, a new purpose to live for, for holiness, for God. And it's interesting that this is one of the things the New Testament does time and time again. Sometimes people read the New Testament to say, how should I live? What are the rules? For Christians, should they do this, not do that? But when you read the New Testament, it's far more interested in not telling you how you should live, but telling you who you are. Because it's this conviction that if we get this idea that we belong to Jesus, and if we look at the Gospels and we learn what Jesus is like, and if we regard ourselves as those that are born again, that are changed and transformed by Him, and are made that the whole world might know who He is, then we begin to figure out in whatever historical context we are, what it is and how it is that we should be living. Abstain, says Peter, of all the sinful desires. You know, the world has all the things it wants. Money, greed, sex, immorality, all the things that are around us. And Peter is saying live good lives, but there's much more than that. He says, live such good lives, verse 12, among the pagans, that's the people who don't believe, that although they may accuse you of doing wrong and they may say all these slanderous things, in the end of the day, they'll have to see that you live differently and that you point to God. You know, one of the things that is very true today 
is that if we want this world to take the gospel seriously, we are not going to do it by preaching at them. We are not going to do it by people who can explain the faith to them. Because they're not going to be in churches to hear it. And they're not going to come to Billy Graham crusades where some amazing evangelist can explain everything to them. But they are going to be in families and they are going to be in workplaces and they are going to be places where they bump into Christians and they are going to see how the Christians are living. And so the most effective mission strategy is that people would look at our lives and start to say, hey, there's something going on here. There is something that is different. But remember, all this comes not because Christians have heard our sermon about how they should live and they're going out there to try their best, but because Christians have been reminded time and time again in their worship of who they are, of who they are. And that matters because sometimes I, I hear people saying things like, well, I'm trying to be a Christian. You heard folks saying that? Maybe you've said it yourself. I'm trying to be a Christian. As if it was all down to me and what I did. But what the gospel comes, it says you are. If you know Jesus and he's in your life, however you're living, you are a Christian. That's the security. And therefore, you're free to begin to allow God to transform you to live differently. It's, it's a bit like the example of marriage. Can you imagine if you said to someone, are, are you married? And they said, I'm not sure, but I'm trying. Now, they may be a great spouse or they may be a pretty rubbish spouse. That's certainly true. But they either are married or they're not married. And it's the same for us as Christians. This is who we are. And therefore, in God's power, we begin to live it. But our worship should remind us of who we are. You are in Jesus and you are in new people. And because of that, yes, sometimes there will be conflict with the world around you. Yes, sometimes society will say, we don't like what you're saying. We, we don't think Christians are right. But you will be a witness by being outstanding citizens. You will be a witness by being loving neighbors. You'll be a witness by being the best possible people that employers could want to employ because of your loyalty and your honesty. You will be a witness by being fantastic spouses even if your spouse doesn't believe. That's why it's really important that we affirm folk in their marriages and help them live it out, especially where there are folk in their own families that don't believe. You will be great children and you will do all of these things. If you think of it a little bit this way, I'm always struck by one Old Testament picture, which is Daniel. Now, of course, we all think of Daniel in the lion's den, don't we? The lion's den was all about Babylon rejecting Daniel and his prayers and the opposition. But actually, the story of Daniel is slightly different than that because Daniel spent most of his time not getting flung in lion's dens. He spent most of his time being a brilliant civil servant making Babylon a better place. But he did that remembering who he was. One of the things we're told about Daniel is three times a day, he went and prayed. And not only did he pray, he faced Jerusalem. As he lived as a stranger, an alien, an exile in Babylon, he didn't just go native because he kept remember, reminding himself, I belong to Jerusalem. I belong to the God of Jerusalem. And I yearn for a day when the people of God will return to the place that they are and the world will be ruled by the authority of God. And that was why Daniel was able to resist, even when they threw him in the lion's den. 
Because even the king said, you know, you're a fantastic servant and I don't want to lose you. And that is the model for our living in Jesus. Now, there's all of the words on there and we're not going to read them all, but normally we never get past the first word, submit. And we go, we've got a problem here, haven't we? Husbands or wives, submit to your husbands and people, ooh. And it starts here actually with the, perhaps the greatest problem. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake, to every human authority, to whether the emperor or the supreme authority of the governors. And lots of people have looked at these words that say submit, 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 and they've said, oh gosh, this is a really conservative Bible. Submit to the patriarchy. Submit to the powers that be. Submit to the government. Submit, submit, submit. But we have to remember the context here again. Who was the emperor? Well, when Peter was writing, it was possibly Nero. We might think of our government today and think, I couldn't submit to them. They're awful. Peter's talking about Nero. It doesn't get much worse. Let, let, let me give you a little clue. He was even worse than Boris Johnson. Sorry, I, I shouldn't get political, but yeah. But you know what I mean? However bad you think the Scottish government is, or the Westminster government is, or whatever it is, they couldn't be as bad as Blum and Nero. The worst maniac dictator that ever reigned. And he goes on to talk about governors. Well, in people's minds must have been governors. What was the most famous Roman governor that early Christians would have heard of? Well, it might be the one that they lived under, but it, possibly the second most famous would be Pontius Pilate. He crucified Jesus. We are not talking about a nice government you should obey them. And this very same Peter had gone into Jerusalem, and when the authorities, the Jewish authorities, said, we ban you from talking about Jesus, he'd said, we will not submit. We will obey God. But what Peter is saying here is, yeah, of course there is a time for saying, no, our true master, our true Lord is, is God, and it cannot be the human authority, it cannot be the patriarchy, it cannot be whatever it is that we're resisting. Nevertheless, he's saying this, you're not there just to cause trouble. You're actually there as you live to live in such a good way, in such a wholesome way, in such a culture-transforming way that in the end of the day, even the pagans are going to have to look at you and say, there is something different about these Christians in their love and their care in the other ways that they live all the time. You see, this explains so much of what follows next. The Christians were a tiny minority. They couldn't vote the government out. They couldn't overturn the patriarchy. They couldn't have a revolt and free all the slaves. But what they did is live in every way they could in a way that actually historically eventually was to completely transform the whole of European civilization. There is a time, and the church should be political, and I'm glad that the Church of Scotland speaks out on issues. I'm glad that the church is speaking out just now across denominations about the injustice of sending people to Rwanda. But the transforming power of the gospel isn't in getting someone from one to one to make a statement saying, this is all awful. It's actually in how we live in the places that God has put us. To give a historical example here, there were slaves in the congregations. Now, there was no way that the Christians could suddenly have a political power to change slavery, and therefore a whole lot of political manifestos here. It would have been helpful for later debates had they done that. 
But what was transforming was that they started to see in church, we are brothers and sisters. Paul wrote a letter to a chap called Philemon, and he wrote that letter because a slave had run away. And Paul writes back to this Christian master who owns the slave and says, I'm sending him home, but I want you to know that he's a brother. And I want you to think about how you're going to treat him and live with him because he's a brother. He's done some things that are wrong. He'd probably stolen some money and you should forgive him because God has forgiven you. And you have to work that through. And Paul doesn't actually spell out what he wants Philemon to do, but you can see a tick, tick, tick. If we begin to change and think about who we are differently, it begins to change the world around us. And it's interesting historically that slavery in the Roman Empire disappeared just about the time that Christianity over the next centuries began to be in the ascendancy. But let me take some other examples. In the Roman world, children were treated as not having full human rights. In fact, one of the awful things was that when a child was born, if a father didn't want it, perhaps because he had too many, or perhaps because it was handicapped, disabled, he could just not pick it up. And if the father didn't pick it up, the child was not part of the family, and the child would be put outside, exposed, they called it, and it was perfectly legal. And maybe somebody would pick it up and make it a slave, or maybe it would just die. You know what the Christians did? They didn't stand around with a placard saying, exposure is immoral, let's get rid of it. No, they just picked the babies up, took them home, brought them up, adopted them. When they died, and some did, because perhaps they were, had huge health problems, they, they gave them a Christian burial in their own burial sites. And as Christians did that, as they began to treat with the theology that they had, that every person was valuable, that Jesus had died for every single person, it began to transform the whole mind of Europe. If you look for a book this summer, read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, pick it up. His thesis is that the whole human rights that we enjoy today rest on that Christian foundation that every single person is made in the image of God. And today, let me just take a very powerful example. As I said before, one of the issues of our day is the asylum crisis. And it's important that we speak politically. It's important that ministers say things and preachers say things and the church speaks out and says we should treat those that come looking for hospitality in grave need with all the compassion that we can. But do you know what's more powerful than an archbishop condemning the government or a statement from the General Assembly? It's this, that 50,000 Ukrainians have been offered homes by families. It's individuals that actually do that. And is that not more powerful? Not the big statements, but the living differently. Sacrificially living. I was reading last night Krish Kandahai's statement about all of this. And he was talking about how it was important to treat refugees with all the compassion that we should because of our Christian heritage. But what's much more powerful to listen to someone like Krish Kandahai, he's been on the forefront of encouraging local churches to welcome people from Hong Kong, from Iran, from Afghanistan. And I've got friends and others I know that have opened their own homes 
to Ukrainians in these days. And I, 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 you know, that is the most powerful witness when you see people doing that. Krish has also been at the forefront of an organization for years called Home for Good. And what that's being doing is taking a leaf out of what the Christians did in ancient Rome and actually saying to churches, could some of you be foster parents? Could some of you contemplate adoption? Could some of you give homes to those children that no one seems to want? And it seems to me that that is the sort of thing that begins to transform society because it's done one family at a time. Food banks. Now, it's easy to say that there shouldn't be hungry people, that government should do this or that. I completely agree. But one of the practical things is that churches have rolled up their sleeves and opened those food banks because they're going to feed the people in front of them or have a breakfast for lonely people or set up a befriend scheme for, for folk that have got no one around them. Yeah, we could have a political argument about what government should be doing or not doing. We may have been different views or we may all agree. But what about just rolling our sleeves up and living differently, sacrificially, where we are? What about forgiving person in the office that doesn't deserve forgiving? What about bringing love and reconciliation? You know, we can strut our stuff and demand our rights, but what Peter says here is, look at Jesus. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't make huge, big demands. He simply took it, lived differently. And as we live, we look to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.